Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. Today, we will interview one of my best friends and favorite people on the Beeson faculty, Dr. Doug Webster. Before we do, though, let me make a plug for our preview day on Friday, October the 15th. This will be our final preview day of the fall semester. We encourage prospective students to attend if they're able. It is the best way to experience all that Beeson has to offer. I always look forward to getting to know the prospective students myself and letting them know what the Lord is doing these days here at Beeson. And if that is not a good enough reason to sign up, I will add that everyone who attends will have his or her application fee waived. So if you or someone you love is interested, find out more at beesondivinity.com slash preview day. Kristen, will you please introduce Dr. Doug Webster? Thank you, Doug. Hello, everyone. It's uh, good to be back with you this week. Today on the show, we have Dr. Doug Webster. He is Professor of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School, where he teaches pastoral theology and Christian preaching. He's also a teaching pastor at the Cathedral Church of the Advent and has, prior to that, pastored in many different places at several different churches. Uh, he is married to Virginia. They have three adult children and several grandchildren. And Dr. Webster is also the author of 25 books, if my calculation was correct. <laughs> uh, and so today we are glad to have him on the show to talk about his most recent book um, on Jesus's parables. So welcome, Dr. Webster, to the Beeson Podcast. Kristen, it's really good to be with you. Well, you were on the show last in 2018 when uh, Dr. Timothy George was the host, and so Doug and I are so pleased that you were on the show with us today. Um, since it's been a, a few years since you were a guest, why don't you introduce yourself for those new listeners, um, a little bit about your backstory, where you are from, your family, and uh, what you teach here at Beeson? Well, seeing that I've been here 14 years I better start saying that I'm from Birmingham. Hmm. Um, it's been a long route maybe to get there. Uh, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, uh, about 10 years in the Chicago area, college and master's, and then 11 years uh, in Toronto, Canada, working on my doctorate and teaching in a seminary and pastoring a small urban church. And from there, uh, three years in Bloomington, Indiana, three in Denver, Colorado, and 14 years in San Diego as pastor of First Presbyterian Church there. So it's been a wonderful journey. Um, it's still ongoing, and uh, uh, the Lord is good. Doug, as we said at the top of the show, we want to talk about your latest book called Parables, Jesus' Friendly Subversive Speech. The title itself is intriguing. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. What is friendly, subversive speech? Why did Jesus engage in it? And just uh, offer a little intro to the book for our readers. What are you trying to do in this book? Sure. Uh, there's a story uh, behind this book. Uh, and it came out of uh, working on the Sermon on the Mount 
and spending four Wednesday nights teaching in a church about an hour from here. So driving through traffic, winding up at the church, having dinner with the people, and then working on the Sermon on the Mount. And I just wasn't getting through. Um, each night got worse. And I, uh, I thought, I've got to find some sort of strategy uh, that's different. And the last night I was walking out, I audibly said to myself, this is why Jesus gave parables. I had been speaking to a group of people who wanted to interpret the Sermon on the Mount by their opinions. And I think Jesus reached a kind of communicational impasse. I think it's very clear in Matthew, because in the buildup to Matthew 13, where Matthew groups most of these kingdom parables, the pressure on Jesus is growing. The opposition is becoming more entrenched. They're plotting his death. His family actually shows up to take him uh, under their charge because they thought he was crazy, out of his mind. And the crowd yet is building. The parables became a communicational strategy that put off the opposition because they couldn't quite understand what he was doing. It kept the crowd interested and attracted to Jesus, and it invited the disciples into a deeper discussion of what the meaning of the gospel was. And so this is, and I wasn't until about a year ago or two years ago now that I saw that there was a communicational strategy at work in the parables. Uh, it was a way of keeping everybody still listening, but at the level at which they wanted to listen. And is that what you mean by the word subversive in the title? What, right. It's, it's an word? inviting method of communication. Um, the religious leaders, I think, often knew Jesus was talking about them, but they couldn't nail him to that. Um, so it was subversive in that sense, uh, and it invited the disciples into the discussion. Dr. Repster, for many in the church, the parables can just be confusing and difficult to read and understand, especially um, given the differences in our cultures. So how would you suggest um, laity um, read the parables and try to understand them and their significance for our lives today? Well, there's a lot to be said uh, in response to that question, Kristen. The stories may strike us as very simple on the surface. But invariably, each parable has kind of an Old Testament root. It doesn't just spring from nowhere. And of course, Jesus didn't invent parables. Uh, remember Nathan's famous parable to King David. So parables were part of the culture. The simple story uh, that has an Old Testament root, and I encourage people to realize always the first principle for parables is who's telling the story. And Jesus is telling the story. So what makes this story unique because Jesus is telling it? The second thing is, did Jesus have to die because of this story? And invariably, the answer is yes, he did. So there is a theological understanding, a theological context. And when you take the parables in the context of the Gospels, whether in Matthew or Luke, which the principal uh, parable resource, Matthew and Luke, Invariably, the context, both in Luke and Matthew, give us a clue and a key for understanding that story. But you've got to be interested. 
<laughs> you have to be interested in the story. You have to be like the disciples asking questions about what does this mean? Because you can usually read it on a moralistic level. So the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, I mean, that's, that's fine. We should help people. We should go out of our way to help people. And that's you, oftentimes how it's been interpreted. You take it a step further, though, and realize that Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19, these passages are coming into play and the whole meaning of the law and the outcome being that Jesus is like the Good Samaritan in going to the cross. Luke 9.51 says he set his face toward Jerusalem. So that's the context for this. And also, even a step further, uh, Isaiah's suffering servant, uh, he's not only the good Samaritan who helps, but he's also the man in the ditch who goes to the ditch in order to save us. So there's a lot of theological interpretation that comes with that. That's not allegorizing, but it's using the parable as I think Luke, in this case, intended it. We want to give our listeners a, a feel for what they'll get if they read the book. And Doug, my next question to you might take a little while to answer, but uh, we want our listeners to know that you go parable by parable, chapter by chapter, through about 22 different parables uh, in the Gospels in your book. And give us a feel for what you do in these chapters. Would you Would you pick just a couple, two or three, of the parables that you write about in the book and kind of lay them out for us, unpack them for us in the way that you do in the chapters of the book itself? Well, there's several things I, I try to do. Um, I guess it'll be up to the reader as to whether or not I achieve this, but I do try to draw out the Old Testament background for it. And I do try to understand what theologians and exegetes have said about the parable. And then I try to surround it with pastoral story. Let, let's take a parable, the parable of the lost son or the wait, waiting father. And I would tell in that case, in the book, I tell a pastoral story of hearing that parable used at a memorial service, a memorial service for a person in his 80s who I loved a great deal, really respected his ministry and his heart for the Lord. And I listened. He had a profound impact on young people. And there was 200 young people at this service for this 80-plus-year-old person who had died from congestive heart failure. But he had spent years becoming very accessible to young people and telling the gospel. And there was a genuineness about him. You could hear a pin drop in the memorial service with these young people talking about how Paul Hummerson had impacted their life for Christ. Well, then the pastor got up and he acted almost as if that nothing had been said about the gospel. And he proceeded to say, my job is to now tell you the gospel. And the restlessness in the crowd just spread. And he said, Paul Hummerson at some point knew that he was lost, like this lost prodigal son. He told the story all out of the context of Paul Hummerson being lost and needing Christ. What in this case, what the pastor failed to see was that there's three main characters in this parable. There's the elder son, the younger son, and there's the father. And Paul Hummerson didn't struggle with a kind of religious uptightness or legalism. 
And these young people didn't know him as any kind of uh, state of lostness, but they did know him as a loving father figure who represented the love of God to them in a most profound way. So I just see the tremendous pastoral value of parables, um, and it might cause us to rethink how we approach them. Prayer and in the spirit is just as important, I guess, as reading the commentaries uh, for understanding those dimensions. And I, you know, this book reflects uh, many years of preaching the parables and then kind of rethinking them in the light of some of uh, our best scholarship. Speaking of preaching, Dr. Webster, you are a seasoned preacher. You teach students here how to preach. Um, how can or should pastors preach the parables or how shouldn't they? <laughs> um, and the example you just uh, gave uh, and what should pastors keep in mind as they're writing sermons on the parables? Um, you per perhaps have already hinted at this, but, you know, are parables to be reduced down to one principle? And that's the principle we hand our people. Or is there a better way to preach the parables? Yeah, that, that's a uh, that's a big question, Kristen. <laughs> uh, a, a hermeneutical question for sure. Um what to keep in mind? One, uh, it's interesting because I hear some people say you should never preach a parable as an isolated aspect of the text. And I agree with that. But it's interesting that, that Luke pulls the parables into the teaching ministry of Jesus as a point of illustration. So he'll use the parables to illustrate a Sermon on the Mount truth. Matthew grouped all the parables together and presented them as a collection. I think it's very important to trust how the Gospels frame the parables. So what is said before and what is said after is crucial to their interpretation. And again, like I said before, remember Jesus is giving the parable. Remember that Jesus is preaching the Old Testament that Jesus had to die in order to present this truth of the gospel, and that it's never just a story. It's always the gospel told slant. So there's a lot more depth to the parable than we often give it credit. And I think it's most effective to try to link it to stories as well. I want to help our listeners out by asking you, Doug, what, what parables are? Obviously, this is a, a loaded question as well. There's all kinds of conversation about this in scholarly literature. And this is a question that we might well have begun with before we got into the details of your book, but I think it makes really good sense toward the end of a conversation like this. What, what do we call parables? What is it that all these things we call parables have in common? And what's so, what do you love about it? What, what's so wonderful about parables? What was Jesus able to do with parables that he didn't do in quite the same way in his other forms of teaching? Well, by beginning with his story, it, because I think stories outweigh propositions, usually in the mind of the listener. So the story aspect is uh, important and gives me a lead in in preaching. I also the the opportunity to maybe get at truth indirectly. I think the soul is like uh, Parker Palmer uses this illustration. The soul is like a scared animal, and easily. Uh, made nervous to run off. 
the parables may, just like Nathan with David, allows an entrance into you thinking about something before the truth or the trigger is pulled. Uh, so there's that aspect. Parable is very simply something that's thrown up alongside the truth of the gospel. In order for us to get another insight, understanding, crack at the gospel. And I mean, we have uh, what I have 22 chapters. I mean, the, the Lord gave us quite a repertoire of story material. And I think almost anything that the gospel proclaims is storied in parables. It's an art form the way Jesus did it. Anything that occurs to you in response to that? No, that's that's great. And uh, obviously, it's a kind of a difficult question to answer, especially if you've been hanging out in seminaries for many years and you know the New Testament literature about it. But, um, you know, I I think for a lot of listeners, uh, they, they kind of know what a parable is. They've read a lot of the things that go by the name of parable in the Bible. But uh, I thought it was a good opportunity to get get a word about how to read parables and understand them for what they are from a real expert in them. Well, I, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. I'm a pastor who has used parables. And, uh, you know, Kristen asked before about one point or two points. I think I have an allergy to that question because, I, uh, you know, I've heard lectures that are as dry and as mundane as ever on the parables. Just use the story. Get into the story. Don't debate how many points. Now, if we go back to the... Uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. Augustine allegorizes that parable tremendously. So the man in the ditch is Adam, who's fallen from, from grace, and the Levite and the priest stand for the law, and the innkeeper is Paul. And, uh, you know, he just takes everything apart. I'd actually prefer that to the kind of gotcha interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which concludes... Christ says, go and do it. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Jesus died for your sins. Jesus means for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And the only means by which we can do that is by the grace of Christ. You know, it's, it's not on the basis of merit, on the basis of mercy. But that's what he meant. Go and do this. And he didn't say that in order to trap us into thinking that some self-righteous, uh, you know, pride would be driving us. So again, Augustine would be more uh, favorable <laughs> on that parable than the, the kind of gotcha theologians of today. You just uh, touched on this, but I've heard you say in our conversation so far, uh, the word gospel as it relates to the parables. And I don't want to assume that all of our listeners can articulate exactly what the gospel is. And, and, and you did just articulate the, the gospel, but I wonder if, if you might say a word more about how you understand that gospel message, especially as it relates to the parables. Well, the gospel is the grace of Christ that's been provided by his life, death, and resurrection. And the hope of that resurrection and the atoning sacrifice of his death. And that's the basis, the mercy of God extended to us through Christ. And it's mercy over merit. If I was going to give a, another title to my book, it would be mercy over merit. 
And I think in, in each parable, that's the controlling theme, God's mercy, not my merit. And that comes through. So that squelches the moralistic interpretation of any parable. And I would suggest uh, uh, there's an interesting, uh, Kevin Van User makes an interesting point about um, the sacraments and the parables. And just like the bread and the cup are objects that speak of the gospel, the parables are objects that speak of the gospel. And so there's, uh, there's a concreteness, there's a substance, there's a visibility about the gospel that comes through the stories of the parables, just as there is when we take the bread and drink the cup. There's a sacramental feel to these parables for that. Dr. Webster, we always like to conclude our, our interviews with guests by asking them what the Lord's been teaching them recently. And we'd love to ask you that question as well. Over the course of the summer, as the new fall term has begun, are there some things that God has been doing in your life, showing you in your life, teaching you that we might conclude with as a way of edifying our listeners? You know, I turned 70 this summer. And I think when I turned, I think I thought that when I was at this age, I'd be calmer, more restful, a less impatient. And my students are teaching me all over again, slowing down, taking it easy. Don't push my material too much, too fast. Let them take it in. And I guess I didn't at this stage think I'd still have to learn these lessons. But uh, I am. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So slow down. That's your word <laughs> to our listeners. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at least if you're like Dr. Webster, slow down. That's a good word. Well, thank you, Dr. Webster, for being with us. Thank you for this wonderful book. I mentioned before we started recording this episode that my own wife, Wilma, is in the middle of reading this book right now, and she commends it heartily. Uh, it is a wonderful uh, set of interpretations of Jesus' own parables. So please, if uh, you can get a copy, please get it and read it. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. Thank you, Dr. Webster, for writing this great book. Uh, please continue to tune in and pray for the students, faculty, and staff at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, we stand in need of your prayers and your support. We love you very much, and we say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.